Well, how's everybody doing? <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty stressful time, and I think, you know, whenever we're uh, facing stressful times, it's okay every once in a while to lighten it up a little bit. And so I uh, created my own little top 10 list. Top 10 instances when social distancing should stay the norm. So be thinking through that. Uh, top 10 instances when social distancing should stay the norm. Uh, the first one, uh, number 10, I guess, we'll go, going 10 to 1. 10, uh, when your kids go on dates. <laughs> kids, high school kids, if you're listening uh, today, uh, leave room for the Holy Ghost, okay? You need at least six feet of distance for the Holy Ghost there, so leave some room. Uh, when mom has had enough touching for the day, number nine, uh, that phrase has been said in our house recently, mom has had enough touching for the day. And so I think social distancing should continue as the norm, uh, whatever mom uh, makes that proclamation. Number eight, after anyone has eaten at Sadie's, just social distancing should be, uh, it's, well, social distancing is recommended after anyone has eaten, <laughs> eaten at Sadie's. Uh, number seven, during conversations about politics, you can see how uh, this could be a benefit to society. Uh, when a, a conversation gets political, you could say, sir, uh, could you just t take six, uh, six paces back? Just, I need you to be six feet away uh, from me during this conversation. In fact, just keep on going. <laughs> just keep on going uh, beyond that. Uh, before the first cup of coffee, I highly recommend this. Social distancing should stay the norm. Uh, before the first cup of coffee. How about number five? Waiting in the checkout line. I don't know about you, but it's, uh, it's actually been kind of nice having a little bit of a buffer between me and the person uh, behind me and the person in front of me. That's kind of been uh, a good thing. I think uh, <laughs> a subdistance there in the checkout line is good. Now, I asked the staff team to help me with this list, and I got to tell you, uh, Lynette sent this suggestion in. Uh, Lynette is our uh, coordinator of all of our missional engagement here at New City, and she said, in the club. So in the club was her suggestion. So I don't know how often uh, Lynette goes to the club, uh, but as often as she goes to the club, she would like some social distancing. I happen to think that if there was more social distancing at the club, I might go to the club. All right, and so there's that. Uh, during church greeting time, someone suggested. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not a fan of church greeting times, maybe social distancing will become more the norm. Uh, I don't know. Uh, this is my favorite one. Uh, well, second favorite one. Number two, while boarding a plane. <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand the psychology of everybody herding in together, and so now I think boarding the plane might be a little bit different, and uh, hopefully some social distancing will occur while boarding the plane. All right, now finally, the number one uh, of the top 10 instances when social distancing should stay the norm is with anyone who owns a pet tiger. All right, we should all keep our space from anyone who owns a pet tiger. All right, now on to the good stuff, the, the message itself. Uh, we are studying the book of Colossians, and there, it's very, very difficult to discern uh, exactly what's going on as far as the background of the book of Colossians, what specific thing the Apostle Paul is confronting. But there are some things that are pretty easy to discern. And one of the things that Paul is trying to do is create an environment for the church at Colossae where there's a complete and total dependence upon Jesus. And that's why uh, we've named the series Hold On. Uh, you see, we are not created to be all-powerful beings. We were not created to be all powerful beings. Dependency is a key feature of, hu of being human. If you're a human being and you're watching this today, you are a dependent 
being. And to be dependent, uh, to be a dependent being is to be a vulnerable being. And so you are dependent on certain things for your life, uh, and those things that you are dependent upon, you are also vulnerable to. You see, we are dependent on uh, the environment, for, for example, to sustain our life. And when the environment doesn't behave as it should, or as nature doesn't behave as it should, uh, we find ourselves feeling vulnerable. You see, we are dependent on the predictability of the environment for both our safety and our sanity. In fact, this predictability is what science rests upon, and we need it to be predictable. We don't want it to act erratically. We need that for our safety and for our security. You see, our dependency, or the vulnerability really, that our dependency sort of creates, it promotes feelings of powerlessness. And we don't like to feel powerless. Uh, it's, it's natural, though, to try to control the powers that we are powerless to control. It's natural for us to try to gain uh, power where we lack power. I think that's some of the background noise in Colossae. See, Colossae was vulnerable to environmental instability. Uh, it was destroyed ultimately by an earthquake in 64 AD. It was a place prone to earthquakes. Uh, it was never rebuilt after it was destroyed in 64 AD. Fun fact, it has never been excavated. So maybe one day uh, in the near future, in fact, I saw some articles that said one day in the near future, there may in fact be an excavation of Colossae. We might know more and actually have some things revealed for us for the very first time in history about what was going on in the neighborhood as Paul was writing this particular letter. We can discern, though, in pagan cultures, it was natural to name and seek the blessing of the powers that made you feel most vulnerable. Uh, it was natural to name the power and to seek the blessing of the power. That, uh, that way you could have some control over the things that you were powerless to control. Uh, Robin Lane Fox in his book, Pagans and Christians, said, uh, they named supernatural culprits and traced their actions to enmities in heaven. Artemis was hostile to Pan, earth to Apollo, Virgin Athena to loving Epaphrodite. Uh, because the gods were present and manifest, it was necessary to ask them about things which might concern them. Otherwise, they might, uh, otherwise they, they might be unpropitious. They might not be uh, gracious towards you and kind to you. You see, it is a profound temptation to think that you can gain control, that you could gain control over the powers that are at work in the world. In fact, that is the temptation that was brought to Eve in the garden. The enemy said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll have power over the powers, the powers like good and evil. But it is, a, it is frightening. It is a frightening experience to realize that we are powerless over the powers that work in the world. And you could say a lot of things about the emotions of the Garden of Eden, but certainly being frightened was one of the primary emotions. We have to fight this temptation in our fear. We have to fight this temptation to serve the powers of surrogate gods, to turn to the powers as surrogate gods and to lean into them rather than trusting in God himself who is preeminent over everything. I think that is the background noise of Colossians 1, 15 and 16. Listen to what uh, Paul says. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn here is re- reference to the fact that firstborn sons uh, were seen as equivalent in terms of ownership uh, to their fathers. And so he's speaking here to the preeminence or the, the sameness of son to father. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is God himself. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. So he, he, everything was created by him. All the powers, both the ones you see and the ones you don't see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all the powers, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is fully God, fully God. And everything belongs to him, even the invisible powers. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus created everything, and everything in creation is his. I want you to look at Colossians 1.16 again. Now, Paul's making this point because there is a temptation within this church to start leaning into these powers and seeking them as surrogate gods over and above God himself. And so he's being very clear. Everything was created by him, verse 16. Everything was created through him. Everything was created for him. All the powers were created by him and through him and for him. To which N.T. Wright says, the world is not ultimately divided into bits that are irreducibly good and bits that are irreducibly bad. Everything, the invisible things as well as the visible, was made by the creator through the agency of his eternal son, whom we know as the man Jesus. God intended his world to be ordered, not random, to be structured, not chaotic. He intended what came to be called the powers, the forces, to be a part of the way this world worked. That is where we must start if we want to understand what Paul's getting at here in Colossians, says N.T. Wright. See, we may not have vivid names for the powers at work in the world, like the names of the Greek gods, but we do recognize them. In fact, when things don't go the way that we hope they would, when things don't happen the way we, we anticipate them to happen, we say things like, there were forces at work that were out of our control. What kind of forces? Well, we talk about the forces and the powers. We talk about the economic forces that are out of our control or the political forces that are beyond our, our power to control or the global forces, whatever they may be, we speak of them that way. See, every force or power at work in the world right now carries with it a reverberation of its good and purposeful intent. But something has gone terribly wrong. What has gone wrong? Linty well, Wright gives us some help here. What went wrong then, says Wright? Why are the powers so threatening? What went wrong was that human beings gave up their responsibility for God's world and handed their power over to the powers. When humans refuse to use God's gift of sexuality responsibly, they are handing over their power to Paphrodite, and she will take control. When humans refuse to use God's gift of money responsibly, they are handing over their power to mammon, and he will take control, and so on. And when the powers take over, human beings get crushed. Then he writes, conversely, when you see human beings getting crushed, it's usually because there are powers at work that human beings are powerless to stop. So there's only one place you can go. 
There's only one place to turn when we are powerless over the powers that are crushing us. One place. Colossians 1.17 says, And he is before all things, Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when you're powerless, where do you go? You go to the one who holds it all together. That's Jesus. You see, Jesus, what Paul is arguing here in Colossians 1, is preeminent in creation. You see that in verse 16 again. For by him all things were created. He's preeminent in creation. But Jesus is also preeminent in the recreation of everything. You see that in verses 18 and following. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And (laughs) that in everything he might be preeminent. You might say this is the central verse of the entire letter that Paul is writing. That Jesus is preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile. He's the firstborn of the dead, it says in verse 18, meaning he's the first to raise from the dead, putting on display the new thing he's about to do, to, to make everything new, to restore everything, or to say it in the verse 20's language, to reconcile everything to himself, whether uh, on earth or in heaven, visible or invisible, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, Let me just press in on this point a little more clearly. We need to hold on to the one who holds it all together and we need to hold on to the one who puts it all back together. And that's Jesus. What's he doing, verse 20? He's making peace. How's he making peace? By the blood of the cross. He's making peace Meaning, he's creating shalom. He's putting the world back to rights again. He's putting it back together again. See, here's the gospel in a very simple sentence. Jesus puts it back together by being torn apart. He makes peace by the blood of the cross, verse 20. Or in the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, And with his wounds, we are healed. So to receive the healing of Jesus in your life, you have to also receive the hurting of Jesus for your life. To receive the healing of Jesus in your life, you have to receive the hurting of Jesus for your life. Now there are two realities of the cross we need to let sink into our soul, deep into our soul. The one reality of the cross is that we are worse than we think we are. If you're sitting next to somebody right now and on the couch, uh, on the back porch, uh, just turn to your, whoever you're sitting next to and just say, you're worse than you think you are. <laughs> if that felt good, it's because you are, in fact, worse than you think you are. You are worse than you think you are. That's, the cross is a, a terribly bloody event. It is, it, is, it is a grotesque event. Because... Th- because it is, it is an event in which Jesus is paying for the grotesqueness of all of our sins. It is commensurate with our reality as sinners. And we have to sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes we have to look at the cross honestly and say about it, that's what I deserve. What I mean by we are worse than we think we are is we spend a lot of our time trying to prove that we're okay, generally speaking, and we're not. 
Generally speaking, we are sinners in need of grace. Which leads me to the second point is we are more loved than we could ever dare dream. That the God of the universe would come down from heaven, live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we should have died, to be buried in the tomb, to rise again, to conquer our sin and death. That is a remarkable story. Look at Colossians 1.21. And you, Paul says, and you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, you, don't forget how bad you were. You're worse than you think you are. What has he done? He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You are more loved than you could ever dare dream. Do you know that? <laughs> See, Paul is saying Jesus is the preeminent creator God of the universe. And he loves you. You, you got you to know that. Verse 19 is true, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He was completely man and completely God, and he put, the, he put the, the reality of God on display for all of us to see. He is God. And then you read verse 21, and you, and you, and you read verse 22, and you, he is now reconciled. God himself, how? Through his sacrifice. This is the kind of truth that has led C.S. Lewis to write, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Or to put it another way, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And everything minus Jesus equals nothing. We have to, we have to come to terms with Colossians 1.18. That in everything Jesus might be preeminent. He, he is preeminent in, in every way. A few years ago, uh, I, got to, I got invited to go on a pastor's retreat. And, and while on this path, there was just six of us. It, it was a, a special retreat with a therapist. It was phenomenal. Uh, we spent the entire time on a yacht, <laughs> which was pretty awesome. Uh, I'm kind of missing traveling right now, to be honest with you. Uh, so we, we, we traveled to, to Florida. We, we spent the entire time in the Gulf of Mexico. We had personalized sessions with uh, just the most remarkable therapists I've ever met. And in one of our sessions, uh, a friend of mine, we'll just say his name is Brad. Uh, that's not his real name, but he, he, was, he was processing out loud. You know, we were all together in a group, and he, and he said, you know, I just feel like God has dropped the ball. And the therapist that we were meeting with, he leaned back and he, and he said, do you believe that it's possible for God to drop the ball? And then he landed the plane on this idea that Jesus will never let you go and he will never let you down. That it is not possible for Jesus to drop the ball. It just simply isn't. Why? Because he's preeminent. <laughs> he's before all things, verse 17. In him all things hold together. He's got it all under control. He's holding on to it all. You need to hear this, okay? Your brokenness does not exceed the healing power of Jesus. It just doesn't. Hear me. Jesus' capacity to forgive far exceeds your capacity to sin. 
And what, this, what, the, what these verses are saying are that he has reconciled you, saved you, overcome your sin, and the net result is this, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. And you might need to hear this, that if you're in Jesus, what's your status? Who are you? You are, you are holy. You are blameless. You are above reproach before him. Why? Because of what he's done for you. You are not saved because of what you've done or what you have failed to do. You are saved because of what Christ has done on your behalf. You see, in every place you feel like you have lost control, remember that Jesus is still in control. In every place you feel like you have lost control, remember Jesus is still in control. Think about it this way. On the cross, it looked like the political forces and the dark powers of this world had won. On the cross, it looked like the forces and the powers were victorious. Now, I've been leaning into N.T. Wright's book, Following Jesus, heavily in the sermon today, primarily because when I read this line, it slapped me in the face. This is what N.T. Wright wrote. The cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. Listen to it again. The cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. It was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus himself in John 10. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it up again. Friend, if your dependency and that vulnerability you feel because of your, your dependency is, is making you feel anxious and worried, turn to Jesus. He has authority over every power at work right now. Powers that are visible, verse 16, and invisible, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, all the powers. He has authority over them all. And what's he doing? He's reconciling, verse 20. Reconciling. What's he reconciling? The things that are both earthly and heavenly. The things that are visible and invisible. He's reconciling them all. And Jesus, my friend, he is both the author and the perfecter, and trusting in him keeps us from growing weary and giving up. He's the author, the creator of it all, the perfecter, the restorer, and reconciler of it all. And trusting in him keeps us from growing weary and giving up. Listen to the words of the Hebrew writer. Looking to Jesus, the founder, or the, the author, and perfecter of your faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. This is, this is Christian discipline. Considering Jesus, meaning, I didn't plan to say this, so that's always dangerous. Take, take stock of all the things you have been considering. Just take stock of it. What I mean by that is just sort of take a mental calculator and go, what have been the things that have dominated my thought processes over the last week? What have I given 
the highest level of consideration to. And then listen to the words of Hebrews 12, 3. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that, consider him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him, that you might not get beaten down and feel the temptation to give up and give in. So the church at Colossae has these teachers coming in. This is just my best guess after all of my reading. Had these teachers have been coming in and saying, Jesus is okay. He's all right. I mean, he's, he's, he's fine. But there are these powers, these forces at work in the world that you also have to pay attention to. It, Jesus alone isn't enough. You need Jesus plus these other things. And I think Paul is writing this letter to say there's nothing more important than Jesus. Nothing worth your consideration. <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing more worth your consideration than Jesus. I, I believe it's possible to accept the gospel in principle and yet deny it, deny the gospel in practice. And this is why I think Paul takes the turn he does in verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And so there's a temptation here to shift attention, allegiance, consideration, thought, uh, thought time and energy, devotion, to something else. He's saying not shifting from, from the hope of the gospel that you heard from Epaphras, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. And so he's trying to underscore. I know there's been some challenges to the teaching of Epaphras, the church planter, but I want you to know I'm the apostle. I'm speaking with authority. Trust my authority. The gospel hasn't changed. What you received was honest and true, so don't give up on it. To put what Paul's getting at here in another way, you cannot know the absolute if you absolutize anything else. To say it a slightly different way, you cannot know the supreme being if something else is already supreme to you. So what are some of the things that rise to the level of supremacy in our lives? One of those things is money and possessions. Sex and relationships, success and appearances, politicians and governments. By the way, <laughs> I mean, this is like one of those weird times as a pastor because in normal times, when the economy is running and they're all running fast and we're all just, you know, kicking butt and taking names, and that's the kind of feeling of the American society, you can have it all. I have to spend a lot of time talking about the fragile nature of money, possessions, and sex and relationships, and success and appearances, and politicians and governments, but, I mean, zero time today. Because you know all those things are fragile. So the question I think that's being raised here is, where does your absolute and complete trust reside? It's obviously a foolhardy experiment to put your complete trust 
in money and possessions, sex and relationships, success and appearances, politicians and governments. Foolhardy. But yet we do it. You see, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your life. It's, <laughs> your idol may be the thing in your life right now that's controlling your emotional state. Idols get your trust and your devotion. That's why people sacrifice their families for a sexual relationship. That's why people will sacrifice their family for money and possessions. That's why people are losing their, I mean, just losing their mind in the home because they're losing money and possessions right now because that's the idol. Success and appearance, politicians and governments, I mean, you just don't have to watch the news very long to see people worship politicians and they worship governments. See, idols will crush you under the weight of their expectations. Because money and possessions, sexual relationships, success and appearances, politicians and governments are never satisfied with your performance. By the way, just as, as a matter of pushing this conversation a little deeper, where are your idols when life is crushing you? Where are they when life is crushing you? You see, only Jesus was crushed for you that you might be healed through him. He's the only God you'll find in the universe who was crushed for you so you could be healed in him. So why would you turn to something else other than Jesus? Turn to him. Consider him that you might not grow weary or lose heart. Now there's a tool uh, to work the gospel deep into your soul that I have, uh, I, I use this tool in my everyday life regularly. I revisit it. And so I feel no shame in bringing this up in continual sermons that I preach. Because this tool is life-changing and game-changing, and it helps us to wrestle away the idols in our life and to put Jesus back at the center. The tool is recognize, rebuke, and replace. Now, recognize is to recognize the idol. Rebuke is to rebuke the idol. Uh, replace is to replace the idol with the gospel, with Jesus, who needs to be at the center because he is preeminent. See, recognize, to recognize, you need to acknowledge what I am really saying to God when I worship this idol. You've got to be able to put words to what you're really saying to God when you worship the idol. You've got to be able to recognize it. Call it out. I'm worshiping this thing. This thing has controlling power over me. It's too much of my emotional state is dependent upon the well-being of this idol. So there's a prayer. Now, I've adopted these prayers from a book that uh, Tim Keller wrote years ago uh, called Romans for You. It's, it's in the appendix of the book, and it's been powerful and helpful for me. Uh, in fact, I'll read to you three kind of prayers that, um, that, that are all from that same book that are helpful. Now this prayer is what you're actually saying to God. This is what you're actually saying to God when you have given an idol the place that only he deserves. You're saying, Lord, it's good to have you, but there's this other thing I must have without which life is not happy or meaningful. And if I can't have it, I will despair. You are not enough. I need this too as a requirement for being fulfilled. In fact, if you would take it from me, I'd turn my back on you. You, for you are negotiable, but this is not. This is the real goal of my life. If you are not useful to me in achieving it, 
I might turn away from you. And that's what you're really saying when you've let an idol take the spot that only God belongs. And so recognize, it belongs only to God. So recognize and then, then rebuke. So when you recognize the idol, what is it? Is, is, it, is, is the idol money and possessions? Is it sex and relationships? Is it, is it success and appearances? Is it politicians and governments? I mean, what's the idol? What's the thing that you keep turning to? It could be any number of things, not just the things I listed. But then once you've recognized it, you've got to rebuke it. And to rebuke, you need to crush the idol under the weight of God's glory before it crushes you. You've got, to, you've got to let God become, become his full weight in your mind. You've got to consider him, think about him, meditate on him. And here's a prayer of rebuke. Lord, I see how repulsive this thing is as an idol. Lord, the thing itself is not evil. It is what my heart has done to it, elevating it, that makes it evil. I refuse to be controlled by it any longer. It wreaks havoc in my life. You justify me, not this. You are my master, not this. I will not be controlled by this. This is not my life. I do not have to have it. Christ is my life. I only have to have him. And so the tool is recognizing the idol, rebuking the idol, let the weight of God's glory crush the idol before it crushes you, and then replace it. And to replace, you need to ascribe ultimate power and ultimate authority to Jesus. Put him in the place of preeminence in your life. And here is a prayer of, of replacing. Lord, I've been trying to earn my own salvation and weave my own righteousness. But you are my salvation and righteousness. I'm accepted in your son. All my problems come because I'm forgetting how loved Honored, beautiful, secure, rich, respected, embraced, and free in Jesus I am. All of the ways of finding honor, respect, purpose, and so on are vain. Let me be so ravished with your love for me that no other love can control me. That's a prayer of replacing. Look, to hold on to Jesus, you need to let go of the idols in your life. And so I have a simple question for you today. And it's this. What's, what's keeping you? What's, what's keeping you from holding on to Jesus? If you've never re received Jesus as your Savior, what's keeping you? If you recognize in the teaching of the message today that you've been holding on to something else that's not your actual savior, then why are you holding on to it? To hold on, you need to let go. What do you need to let go of so you can hold on to your savior? We would love to know if, you, if, you, if you've chosen today to hold on to Jesus as your savior, You'll see in the chat feature, if you're watching on the live feed, an opportunity to just respond to Jesus. We'd love for you to respond to Jesus. Say, yep, raise my hand. I, I'm in, count me in, I wanna know Jesus. We'd like to follow up with you about that. But if you're one of those people right now, you've recognized I've got an idol in my life that's dominating, controlling me, that's been in control of me all week. My, my emotional state is unsettled because I'm not settled about who my savior is. Listen, to hold on, you gotta let go of something. 
So let go. Every week we, we end our, our teaching time with three kind of movements, generosity, communion, and prayer. I want to speak to generosity just quickly. Uh, on May 3rd, next Sunday, uh, we'll be having a Be Good News Commitment Weekend for anybody who, who still is kind of lagging on from behind. I know economic realities are different for everybody and nobody should feel pressure. Only ask Jesus what he would have you to do and that's, that's totally good with me. And I mean, we're, we're, what we're doing is we're using these Be Good News funds, the extra funds through Be Good News in that With Our Lives category to try to do good in our city. Uh, everything from purchasing meals that we're distributing to, to, to families at Mission Ave to considering how we can best serve Navajo Nation. And we're really, strongly considering what that looks like and how we can best serve those who are in need in our community right now. We will be generous as a church. Uh, our history has proven that to be the case and you know that will be the case and we are prayerfully considering the wisdom of where we can have the greatest impact with our generosity as a church. So I want you to know that's our first priority in the Be Good News Fund right now. And so we've, in the Be Good News initiative, we talked about being good news for people in the city with our lives. And that's what we intend to do, is to be good news for people in the city with our lives. You can go to Be Good News at church, find out more about it. But if you have a commitment to make uh, next week, I'd love for you to submit that online at begoodnews.church. You can do it that way. So generosity, communion, and, and prayer. Now, communion, uh, you can do on your own at home. You can take some bread. Uh, you can break the bread. Remember Christ's body broken for you. You can take the cup. Remember his blood shed for you. Just confess he's preeminent. He's, he's first place in your home. This would be something cool to do with your family, to get around the table, to break the bread, take the cup, and just, just pronounce that Jesus is preeminent in our home. There's nothing else that's more important than him. He is he's the Lord of our home. Now for our prayer today, we've been you know, doing these prayers, corporate prayers, and I've been asking you to, to read along with the prayer so we could pray this together. I took that final prayer, that prayer of replace, and I just worded it so it could be a communal confession. And I'd love for all of us to make this confession that Jesus is first place. And, and to do that in a time of prayer. So would you, would you pray with me? Just wherever you are, wherever you're watching, just, uh, you just read along. We don't all have to be reading at the same, on the same cadence. We could just be reading along together. And, and make this prayer, this is a prayer that we all say yes to. And this is one of the ways that we can all feel connected right now in this, this time when we are distant from each other. And we can all just say yes to the same prayer at the same moment. And so I'd love for you to be praying with me. Lord, we have been trying to earn our own salvation and weave our own righteousness. But you are our salvation and righteousness. We are accepted in your son. All our problems come because we are forgetting how loved, honored, beautiful, secure, rich, respected, embraced, and free in Jesus we are. All of the ways of finding honor, respect, purpose, and so on are vain. Let us be so ravished with your love for us that no other love can control us. And all God's people said, amen. Love you, church. God bless.